let's walk through what happens uh, maybe. If you're a ghosty ghost owner on Ethereum and you want to send that NFT to somebody on Avalanche Network, what actually happens is you send that NFT to layer zero. That NFT gets destroyed. A new NFT with a new address, new code, if it had any functionality built into it, new functionality, then gets created on Avalanche. So it's hard to say, and, and you know, it, it starts to become a little bit philosophical, but did you actually move that NFT <laughs> or did you just make a copy of it? And our belief is that you made a copy of it and that's not really a multi-chain NFT. You're saying this is like the, the teleportation paradox. Exactly, like the teleportation paradox. Yeah. Okay. How, yeah, many, how many times did Captain Kirk die? <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising, with host Sabretooth, a professional NFT collector, and Kizu, a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So, if you are a creator or a collector of NFTs, jump in. The water is warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floyd's Rising. Uh, with me today is the two founders of uh, Spanning Labs. I have uh, Drew and Pratik. Welcome to the show. Yes, th thank you for having us. Tell us uh, first, like, how did you guys... You know, getting to sort of NFTs, how did you guys start this this project? And just, I guess give us a background of, of where you guys came from and how, how you got into this. Pratik and I met for the first time about five years ago at an internship working on self-driving cars, actually. So we were working at Zooks, which is now Amazon's self-driving car uh, bet in the space. And we met at the internship, worked together. Uh, very closely on a number of projects, ended up joining full-time and staying for about five years. Uh, and then toward the end of last summer, we, we were looking to make a change after the company sold to Amazon. Uh, culture had changed, the problem had changed a little bit, and we got really excited by Web3 and blockchain development. Reading every white paper that came out, hopping into all of these new DeFi projects at the end of DeFi summer, um, and what really excited us was the number of similarities between robotics and self-driving cars and uh, safety-critical systems engineering and blockchain development. Um, at, at its core, they're both really the studies of distributed compute systems. You know, Ethereum has miners spread all across the world that have to talk together in one network and come to a consensus on how the Ethereum blocks are updated. And a self-driving car might have 30 to 40 different computers on it, whether they're sensors or redundant compute systems that also have to talk to each other in a very similar way and come to a consensus on what to do. And there's a really interesting amount of overlap between the problems that you see in both those industries, as well as the solutions that are being applied. So we started seeing a lot of companies being built around uh, these algorithms and these solutions to these distributed compute problems that were basically taking ideas from the robotic space 
uh, that were 10, 15 years old and reapplying them with new names. And the idea that we got the most excited by was interoperability. We were really excited about interoperability as we started looking around in Web3, mostly because of all of the communities that we were starting to see. We saw these really very innovative NFT projects, DeFi protocols, you name it. There was all kinds of creativity coming around the community. And what we were realizing as we were looking into interoperability was the fact that there was such a high barrier to entry to even participate in a large number of these communities. If you didn't have an Ethereum wallet, you might not be able to work with stoner cats. Or if you didn't have this account, you wouldn't be able to do something else. And so as we started getting deeper and deeper into the space, we ended up realizing that Web3 isn't really so much of a web quite yet. It's really more fractured than it needs to be. And that's really what led us to Spanning Labs, how we can create an end user experience that is as simple as browsing the current internet without having to worry as much about the complexities of which cross-chain communication to use or which services are optimal for what. I'm interested um, by something you said, Drew. You said like you saw a lot of solutions that were sort of decades old in the robotics industry being applied in sort of blockchain and crypto. Um, can you kind of expand on what, what, what you mean by that and what, what, you, like, um, uh, what, what kind of things that you see have, have I guess, cross-pollinated from robotics into, I guess, blockchain or crypto? So Byzantine consensus it is the core algorithm for uh, Bitcoin's consensus. And the, the problem it's trying to solve is how do you get multiple computers to agree on one thing without them trusting each other? Um, and that's something that's really commonly used in rocket launching. So if you're NASA and you're launching the Saturn V rocket, you have multiple computers running all of those launch calculations. Uh, and the trust assumptions are a little bit different. You, you, it's not that you think one of those computers might be malicious or trying to run a transaction uh, that other people don't want and doesn't really exist. Um, but there might be some cosmic radiation that causes a bit to flip in one of your computers. And when you're working with rocket ships or airplanes or self-driving cars, the, the level of safety um, that you have to meet and the level of validation and robustness that you have to meet is so high that you have to account for these one in a billion uh, statistical anomalies. So you have to have these redundant computers all doing the same calculation because if a ray from the sun flips an electron in your computer, and causes your math to be off by some factor, um, then people can die. And no, no one wants people to die. So uh, Byzantine consensus was something that was used in safety-critical robotics in rocket launches way before Bitcoin used it. Um, and, and there are a lot of other analogies. Proof of history uh, that Solana yeah. used is very similar to a concept in the robotic space for doing deterministic simula simulations, uh, making sure that all your sensor messages come in the right order when you go to re-simulate something offline. Um, Pratik sounded like something you, you, you might have something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say the same thing. The, 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 the concept of proof of history in something like Solana is, is almost the exact same algorithm that we use 
for simulating robotics on and offline, whether you're a rocket or a car or an airplane, the algorithms end up being fairly similar. And I think the, the largest tie-in between robotics and Web3, just generally speaking, is this concept of a number of different components having to work together in unison. And that's not something that you see as commonly, the this, this systems level engineering. Um, having to have multiple components independently interact with each other is a little bit more of a beast than you'd expect it to be. And we've found that a lot of the procedures and kind of tools and kind of approaches we've used for our previous careers apply very, very well to Web3 as well. Why don't you guys um, give, I guess, uh, our audience an overview of what is the solution um, that, that you guys are proposing for sort of cross-chain interoperability? Um, yeah, yeah, I would love to. And I think maybe it helps to first take a step back and just talk about where we think the industry is going and, and what multi-chain applications will look like in five years. Um, and I think we have a pretty strong belief that we'll see blockchains start to trend more towards these application-specific blockchains. So there won't be one blockchain to rule them all, um, but there might be one blockchain that's the best at payment processing. And maybe that is Ethereum in the future because Ethereum has the most decentralization, uh, the most trust from the public and the ability to store a lot of value. So that's where everyone's going to want to run their payment processing. But maybe something like Solana or Avalanche or one of these faster, cheaper networks that can support higher bandwidth transactions uh, becomes the place where the actual application logic lives and that the user uses as their front end into Web3. Um, and then maybe there's, you also have things like Palm.io, uh, which is an Ethereum layer two optimized for NFT storage and transfers that might be where you store the NFTs for your project. So uh, the, the way we, we see the future is that applications will all start to be multi-chain and they'll start to use blockchains as individual services. Uh, very similar to what we see in Web2, where you might be building a website today and you use MongoDB to serve all of your images to the website, but then you store the user data on Amazon S3. Um, and you use all of these different databases that are optimized for different use cases for their optimized use case. And that allows you to build much more complicated applications, as well as deliver much better user experiences. Um, yeah, and, and what, what Drew is kind of implying there is really kind of what led us to build our product. In a vision of the future where we do expect these blockchains to be more commoditized and treated more just like regular services, there almost isn't a requirement that there's an easy and simple way for these chains to communicate, because it doesn't make sense that you would have to wait 30 minutes or click 48 times just to access some data from Palm versus a different piece of data from Ethereum. And so that really led us to the, the core architecture that we've built to, to allow interoperability. Um, one thing I'll mention before we explain our, our protocol is kind of describing um, some of the pitfalls that we see today in the space of Web3 generally. Um, we see a lot of trouble right now with the concept of having to create multiple accounts in this case, that means creating multiple wallets and custodying multiple private keys and 
mnemonic phrases and a number of other things. And we've also seen that there is a surprising amount of centralization in the context of where assets live. Um, there, there are some pretty high value contracts that live on chain that end up acting as kind of honeypots for the larger community. And so when we were designing our protocol, we wanted to kind of keep all of those things in mind. Right. And, and we see a lot of those problems uh, in interoperability approaches today stemming from the fact that people are moving assets around. Um, and, and blockchains were really designed so that you can't move assets around. You know, if you deploy an NFT to Ethereum, that NFT only exists on Ethereum. Uh, and we see people moving and making multi-chain NFTs today in a way where they're giving that NFT on Ethereum to some bridge. That bridge is holding that NFT forever and custodying it and making a new NFT on another chain that represents that NFT. Um, and in our minds, that's pretty equivalent to taking a screenshot. You know, the, the Ethereum NFT can only exist on Ethereum. Second, you've made a new NFT on Solana that represents it. Um, that's a new NFT. So, so we wanted to change that model significantly. And the approach we take at Spanning Labs is instead of moving assets around, we're really focused on moving users around. So that NFT that got deployed on Ethereum is always the NFT that people are interacting with, no matter what network they start on. It's always the exact same code they're executing, the exact same contract address uh, from the developer's perspective. Uh, the contracts don't have to uh, change address. The collections never get broken up. If they have royalty fees baked into that contract, there's no, no extra work they have to do to go uh, interact with uh, users on another network who might sell that NFT and give them royalties. Uh, they always get paid in Ethereum to the same address. And changing that model from what's standard today of moving assets to moving owners around is what really unlocks a lot of these security benefits and um, this better user experience that we're trying to deliver. Yeah, can, can you talk a bit more about you know, what do you mean by <clears throat> moving owners around? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, can you go, can you go into a bit more detail there? Yes. So, so it's really important to us that an NFT always is always owned directly by the user. So when you're moving these assets around and, and you're doing these essentially loans across chain today, um, that asset ends up being owned by the bridge you use. That owner's name in the owner fields on the NFT contract is bridge A. Um, and that creates an attack vector because uh, now if that bridge gets hacked, that NFT can be stolen, um, as well as means you don't actually own that NFT anymore because you're not, <laughs> literally, you're not the owner. So, so in order to support owners on other chains, we're kind of working on a new NFT standard that lets people claim ownership cross-chain. So instead of saying Sabretooth owns this NFT, we add an additional piece of metadata that says Sabretooth from Ethereum owns this NFT. Sabretooth 
from Solana owns this NFT. Sabretooth from Avalanche owns this NFT. And now you have the same ownership model and the same access rights that a local user does uh, without really caring what network that that NFT is stored on. Um, and, and that's something we're really excited about. So how does ownership change under your model? So can, can, can you explain that a bit? Because um, under a traditional sort of blockchain model, um, how ownership changes is like, you know, if I sell an NFT, um, uh, essentially, you know, um, one address on Ethereum has kind of lost access to the NFT and, and another address on Ethereum has now sort of gained permissions to, to that NFT. Um, but you, when you're talking about cross-chain ownership, if the NFT is still on, say, Ethereum, how would, let's say, a user on Solana be able to um, control the, the, the NFT? Yeah, that's, that's what's pretty exciting about our protocol because you, you hit the nail on the head. When an NFT, change, an NFT changes hands between two users, what ends up being updated is the ownership field inside of that NFT contract. And as Drew mentioned, due to our spanning address standard, where we include metadata about what chain you're coming from, we can put in a user, say, Sabretooth from Solana into that address field, even if that address lives, or even if that contract lives on Ethereum. For interacting with the NFT, we, we have two kind of approaches here. The first is for the off-chain use case. So if you want to show off your NFT on a marketplace, or you would like to perform some action using a front end, um, they just authenticate in your example with their Solana wallet. And now that they have a Solana signature, they're able to sign messages, which is what the front end needs to validate that you are the owner of a given NFT. For the on-chain use case, for, for people who would like to use their NFTs um, autonomously within different blockchains, we also offer a, a backwards compatibility tool that allows you to interact with these various multi-chain contracts as if they're local. Um, and that's kind of where our delegate network and our relay platform really comes in handy because that's the platform that allows us to say with certainty that a certain message sender is originating from a given chain. And so um, if, if, you're, if any of your viewers or anyone typically creates NFT contracts and they use message.sender, instead they just have to use spanning message.sender and everything else to just work the same. I see. So in your on-chain use case, though, um, in order for an on-chain, uh, say, a transaction to happen, um, you know, there, there needs to be sort of gas paid. So how would a Solana user pay gas um, on Ethereum for, for, for a transaction to, to happen on-chain? So making sure that that Solana user doesn't ever have to touch Ethereum and can pay gas and run the transaction only using Solana is something that we think is very important. Um, so ultimately that means that our network covers the gas fees on the Ethereum side. Um, and, and we do charge a transaction fee, but we're able to charge that transaction fee in Solana. So 
that kind of raises a, a good question is, well, you kind of lose the benefit of Solana if you're a Solana user buying an NFT on Ethereum, because now you have to pay those Ethereum gas price prices. You get to pay them in Solana, but they're still expensive. So the, the real value for users is that you can be in a, uh, you can take advantage of the delta in the network characteristics from where you're starting and where the application is hosted. So going from Solana to Ethereum might not make sense if for a microtransaction, um, but it might make sense for interacting with your board ape or your CryptoPunk or another really high value asset that you want to be on Ethereum and have the security of Ethereum. Um, for most use cases and, and what our developers are usually excited about is leaving Ethereum. So users get to live on Ethereum, they get to authenticate with Ethereum and trust the security of Ethereum to protect their ownership. Um, but the asset can live on a blockchain like Avalanche where uh, it's much cheaper and faster to mint and interact with, with the asset. So you go from a minting cost on Ethereum of 20 to $30 to minting that same NFT with your Ethereum address, paying in Ethereum on Avalanche for 20 or 30 cents. Um, so so am, I, am I correct that in order for the functionality of your, of your protocol to, um, to be used, um, the NFT it's, it itself has to you know, include um, essentially like the, 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 the NFT standard um that you guys have have kind of pioneered so that means that existing nfts in that that already exist in the wild that they would not be able to take advantage of this sort of protocol or the functionality that that the protocol offers you know unless they you know either wrap themselves in, the, in a new standard or you know they issue the nfts under this new standard is that is that correct yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think at the end of the day, the, the important thing to keep in mind is that it, it's not possible for a contract that was meant to be deployed locally to interact in a multi-chain way because of what we described earlier. At the end of the day, there needs to be some amount of extra bookkeeping about you know what network you're coming from, what chain you, you're connecting with. And so I think that for an NFT to go multi-chain, one way or another, there requires some amount of bookkeeping changes. And so what we really focus on at Spanning is trying to minimize that integration effort for our developers, all the way to the point where we've gotten it down to one word of integration. You replace the word open Zeppelin with the word Spanning in your imports, and then your contract is now multi-chain. Right. And not only is it multi-chain and easy to integrate with, but it also still abides by that open Zeppelin ERC-721 or ERC-1155 standard. So it can be interacted with, with as a local NFT with all of the existing marketplaces and tooling that uh, is already set up. So from what I understand, um, you're proposing a quite, quite a purely technical um, bridging solution. Uh, that I understand will still kind of affect um, the behavior of artists, for example, who um, want to release a project. So their choice of chain is still going to be dictated by, you know, you, you described uh, the local characteristics of the chain, um, even though it's going to, you know, operate 
um, and and interact with other chains. So I was wondering, what, how do you think that's going to affect because of the mechanisms you've described? It does seem that um, there might be perhaps less incentive to break away, so to speak, um, and, and kind of populate one chain or another uh, because there's this ease of um, operating across chains, even though, for example, um, <clears throat> you know, you might you might have to pay that Ethereum gas fee and so on and so, on and so forth. Um, how do you see the, you know, as, assuming your, your solution takes off uh, with mass adoption, how do you see the, the NFT marketplace landscape uh, changing in, in step with that or, or not? Right. I, I think we will see this fragmentation, um, but we'll see the fragmentation kind of fall in line with different use cases and utilities. So that there might be one blockchain or network um, that's dominant for gaming because that's where a lot of the gaming ecosystem lives. It's good for microtransactions, has high bandwidth, it's fast. Um, but we might see another chain that's optimized for high value NFTs um, that maybe don't get transferred that much or, or don't have that much interaction with them uh, for profile pictures. And um, we'll start to see more and more segmentation happen based on what those NFTs are used for uh, and what on-chain capabilities uh, the developers and the artists and the creators are optimizing for. So maybe another example is if fiat onboarding is really important to you, then uh, deploying somewhere like Flow that has a great fiat onboarding integrated wallet um, is, is the chain you would pick. Um, but ultimately, we don't want creators to be limited by the chain they pick in terms of the market that they can reach. So anyone deploying anywhere should be able to reach anybody. Um, and, and it's kind of analogous to the early days of Web2. I remember paying for AOL so that I could use AOL Mail and AOL Instant Messenger. Um, but now when people go and pick their internet service providers, what applications and what websites they want to visit isn't a consideration. Um, you know, it's which is Comcast or Xfinity going to give me the fastest connection in my apartment building <laughs> and which one's cheaper. And those are kind of the two criteria I use when I pick an internet service provider. And I'm confident that no matter which one I pick, I will be able to get to uh, spanninglabs.com. <laughs> you know, the ISP uh, analogy is really pertinent. I, I actually, from, from, a, from the art perspective, I do think that maybe there is something to be said to be able to brand uh, one chain or the other as um, mm -hmm. Along non-technical lines, because after all, it's not just uh, an ISP kind of a, a yeah. fungible public good. We're talking about we're talking about you know potentially extremely um, devoted, you know possibly slightly irrational, but basically not defined according to entirely um, quantifiable and, and and quantitative aspects. Yes, definitely. And we've talked to a couple uh, NFT creators and, and projects that basically had that same feedback. They were like, uh, you know, we never want to deploy anywhere other than Ethereum because there's just this certain prestige 
associated with having your project on Ethereum, um, that deploying it on one of these smaller networks uh, doesn't get you and you, you miss out on a certain crowd of people. If, an, if a creator wants to move to a different chain, they're more than able to. There's, there's nothing that stops them. And, and that's kind of one of the biggest benefits of the spanning protocol is the fact that there's such low switching costs to move around and to try different things out that it really lets the creator make decisions however they want. And so if there really is a chain that you know has the, the ethos that a creator wants to be a part of and it's suboptimal from a technical perspective, they're more than able to, to deploy there. I, I don't think there's any issue with that. I would say um, at this point in time, and um, your, your, you know, your, your competitors have have launched essentially. Um, a lot of them have launched uh, already, um, and uh, I, I want to get your take on how you one how you see uh, you know what what your biggest competitors are, and then how you see the differences um, and, you know, the pros and cons, I guess, of, of your particular approach to cross-chain interoperability of NFTs versus, um, and feel free to, to, to use these names or to, to, you know, to provide your own, Axelar, Layer Zero, Multi-Chain, Chainlink CCIP, Seller Seabridge, you know, feel free to use these or, 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 or other ones we're starting to see people move away from just asset bridging. So all of these competitors uh, that you've named that are live have asset bridges and they're pretty specifically designed to move money around. Um, and we talked about some of the problems inherent with that model earlier in the podcast. Uh, and people are starting to realize those problems exist and that they'll always exist. So what we've seen is kind of a general shift towards people talking around about moving data rather than moving money. Um, and that's what we're doing as well. We're moving data, but we've kind of fit moving data into this other model that we're specifically moving ownership. Um, and we haven't seen someone take that approach yet. Uh, we, we don't think we'll be the, the only people to take this approach, especially if we start to become successful and, and, and gain some traction. Um, but we're the only ones thinking this way right now, at least. So we have that going for us. <laughs> what we've seen a lot of our competitors do is develop these solutions that are very blockchain specific. Um, and we've worked really hard to make sure that the spanning network is network agnostic. So not only does that mean it, it's easy for us to support all different types of blockchains uh, and future-proof ourselves for things like ZK, um, but we can also right out of the box support Web2 integrations. So if you can sign in and authenticate with your Google account and uh, you, know, you use a provider like Stitch or Cloudflare to generate a public and private key pair for you, you can use that to talk directly to the spanning network and use your Google account to go buy an NFT on Ethereum. Um, and that's something that we also expect competitors to, to focus on uh, when they're able to, but we think really needs to be baked in to the architecture from day one to be able to support. Um, and, and that's something we think we have done in a unique way. 
How, how do you see your solution being different, for example, from say layer zero? Um, so um, they've already come out and, and I think they, they, there's a NFT project like Ghostly Ghosts, um, which sort of released and, and had quite a bit of hype around that sort of cross-chain um, yeah. NFT. They, they released on multiple sort of blockchains. Um, uh, and so, so how do you see, you know, the difference between so, what you guys are releasing and, and what layer zero is releasing? Let's walk through what happens. Uh, maybe if you're an, a, a ghosty ghost owner on Ethereum and you want to send that uh, NFT to somebody on Avalanche Network, what actually happens is you send that NFT to layer zero that NFT gets destroyed. A new NFT with a new address, new code, uh, if it had any functionality built into it, new functionality, then gets created on Avalanche. So it's, it's hard to say, and, and you know, it, it starts to become a little bit philosophical, but did you actually move that NFT? <laughs> or did you just make a copy of it. Um, and our belief is that you made a copy of it. And that's not really a multi-chain NFT. Okay, so it's, it's, you're saying this is like the, the teleportation paradox. It's exactly like the teleportation paradox. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, how, many, how many times did Captain Kirk die? <laughs> um, Okay, let, 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 let me let me play devil's advocate here. Um, it, <clears throat> would it be correct that since the the way sort of ownership transfers is handled um, with the Spanning Labs uh, sort of protocol um, NFTs um, is 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 different than currently how how sort of ownership transfers that in order for Sort of this to take off um, a sig significant amount of sort of existing infrastructure like OpenSea or, or just you know everything around sort of NFTs needs to support this. Um, like, like like for example, if if someone implemented a Spanning Labs NFT today, um, could they move it on OpenSea or would completely either new infrastructure or would OpenSea have to support this standard? in order for sort of, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of Spending Labs um, compliant sort of NFTs to be, to be traded? Yes. So the real thing that needs to be supported are these multi-chain addresses. Um, so with the OpenSea example specifically, OpenSea supports Ethereum NFTs, Polygon NFTs, soon to be Solana NFTs um, as well. And if you're the de a developer and you've deployed your spanning NFT on any one of those networks, then it works on OpenSea. No changes necessary functions as normal. Um, if you're a spanning developer and you deploy your NFT on a network that OpenSea doesn't support natively right now, then uh, we, you would need to wait for either OpenSea to support that network natively or for them to start supporting these multi-chain addresses. Um, and we're working with a lot of marketplaces and, and talking to OpenSea as well to start supporting these multi-chain addresses. Um, 
So yeah, something I something I want to emphasize here again is that for OpenSea to to support multi-chain NFTs, whether that comes from spanning or from someone else, there always has to be some amount of extra bookkeeping required. And so I think that there's kind of this this fairly low barrier to entry that any marketplace will need to adopt for full multi-chain integration. And one of our main focuses, like Drew mentioned, is getting that down to just supporting addresses specifically. They don't need to support any other vendor-specific type of interactions. Yeah. And it's also worth maybe diving into a little bit. What are these multi-chain addresses that we keep talking about? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of people, a lot of companies that talk about interoperability and composability today with lip service, but are ultimately bringing a new standard in. Um, and, and we're bringing in a new standard in a little bit, but we've actually built these multi-chain addresses on the chainlist.org domain ID standards. So it really is just a concatenation between a user's address, their 20-byte local address on Ethereum or Solana, and uh, the chainlist domain ID. So it can be read directly uh, by a human as, you know, it's drew.eth from Ethereum it is the, the multi-chain address. And that's important because it means these addresses can be um, made deterministically by anybody. We don't store any mappings of Sabertooth to some multi-chain address. Anyone who's talking to Sabertooth can generate that multi-chain address on their own uh, and prove that ownership and prove that record. So we don't need to be in the loop uh, and, and act as any third party. How you guys plan to, um, I guess, get this get this uh, standard adopted? A lot of your competitors uh, launched in a bull market and have gotten a lot of sort of mind share. Um, how do you plan, I guess, to um, to, to get adoption, I guess, for the for the standard? We we found that uh, we're solving a real problem that NFT projects and creators have today that uh, no one else can solve. So we're working with a number of NFT projects now to deploy these spanning NFTs today. And while our network isn't live. Uh, so they don't have full multi-chain capabilities yet. Uh, they are live and out in the wild, and we're starting to get users and partners on board using these standards. So it's a tough grind, but we have to build a community of our own, of developers that agree that this is the way forward. Um, and it's a little bit easier because it's not necessarily spanning specific. Uh, Pratik mentioned previously that you know there's always going to be some integration work and and things have to change for an NFT project today to be a multi-chain NFT project. And at the minimum, if they want to have a user own the contract from another chain, they have to be able to identify that user. Um, so so we've kind of given the minimum information that's needed to do that, and we've done it in a standard way that uses an existing standards and approaches. Um, so yeah. we're talking to projects that might not even want to be on the spanning network one day, 
um, but are still adopting the standard so that they can airdrop their NFTs to users across Ethereum and Solana and Near Protocol and um, uh, do all, all of this interesting multi-chain stuff. Yeah, the, the one other thing I'll mention for the, the mindshare aspect is that one advantage that Spanning has going for it is the fact that the, we don't have as much maintain, maintenance requirements around our existing products. Um, competitors often have to worry about making sure that their asset bridge is solvent during these bull, uh, these bear markets and things like that. And honestly, it, it seems that that proves to be a little bit of a distraction from the, the core innovation that we're, we're building here. And so we think that by allowing ourselves to focus deeply on easy integrations and partnerships right now, specifically for our NFT users and our NFT clients, we think we can provide a much better experience. Is this a um, uh, an, an exclusive um, support for NFT? So, meaning like um, you know, you know, currently like the NFT to blockchain relationship is is an exclusive one, right? So, if you exist on Ethereum, you can't exist on say AVAX or Solana. Um, do you is your sort of spending labs um, sort of standard uh, an exclusive standard? So, meaning. Uh, for an NFT to support Sending Labs, they can't, for example, be sort of layer zero compatible or Axelara compatible. Or is it is a is it a is a standard that basically anyone can support and you can support multiple sort of cross-chain standards? You, you can support multiple. And that's something that we've also really focused our design on. So we've built the general architecture in a very, very modular way. Um, and if you kind of tie into our endpoints on chain, uh, when you send these messages across chain, we, we have the capability for a developer or user to specify additional data about how that message is sent. Um, and we have our own relay network plugged in to our system today. And uh, we believe that was going to be the fastest and cheapest uh, option going forward. But we do want to support more decentralized options and uh, other relayer networks that users can choose between. So if you are making an extremely large transaction and you only trust sending your NFT to someone else via IBC, which is probably the most secure, most decentralized protocol today, um, you can specify that in your transfer call and uh, we'll route the message accordingly. Is there any questions that, uh, that, that we haven't asked that you think we should have asked? Uh, I, I would ask you know, if, if someone's really excited about what we're building, how, how they can learn more information. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, uh, okay. How, how would someone uh, so, get more information? So, uh, we do have a Discord community. We have a Twitter at Spanning Labs uh, that you can get to the Discord community quite easily. Uh, you can visit our website, spanninglabs.com, or email us at hello at spanninglabs.com. And we're excited to bring more partners on now. So we are launching with partners now to add those multi-chain functionalities to their contracts so that when we go live uh, early next year, you will be able to sell your your NFTs to multiple users on multiple networks and have them play your game or, or use the functionality of your NFT and claim ownership. Um, 
So that, that was the quick, quick shell. Thank you for letting me get that in there. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite or what are your favorite NFT projects? The ones that you find uh, the most groundbreaking, kind of like revolutionary or, or, or groundbreaking? Yes, I'll, I'll go with more recently so I can give them a, a bit of a shout out. But um, my current profile picture that I use is a blob. Uh, blob.town is the website. I, re I really like the community they've built on Discord as well as their art. Um, they're really kind of trying to bridge the physical worlds and uh, 3D printing these blob characters that you can go buy or uh, the latest project they had uh, was Joyride. So every blob owner got a piece of a car and then uh, you can start to buy and combine different pieces of these cars and trade them around. And now they're 3D printing these cars uh, and racing them in kind of like a Pinewood Derby. And it's a lot of fun. Um, and I really enjoy the community that's been built around it and uh, seeing what people get to create with these NFTs as well. So, you know, people are mashing up the different car parts and, and really making uh, some creative combinations, <laughs> which is cool to see. Yeah, I think I think my answer, unfortunately, is going to be a little bit similar to Drew, but the, the NFT projects that I'm most excited about are the ones that start to tie in more into the real world. So, for example, I've been following Stoner Cats for quite a while, and the fact that they basically are able to use their platform to create more content for, for their users is pretty exciting. And I, I see an increasing use of these kinds of utility and gating and content-based NFTs that will really, will really create some value. And as we move forward, as we kind of, as we mentioned earlier, make blockchains more like services, I'm really looking forward to seeing more changes in the, the generative art space, specifically how we can start generating art on chain rather than generating them off chain and just minting them. Um, I think there's a lot of pretty interesting work being done for how you can do that. And I'm really excited to see how, how that future shapes out. Awesome. Uh, Drew, Pratik, thank you guys for coming on the show. Yes, thank you very much for having us. This one's great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Floor is Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow. And give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor is Rising. You can reach out to us or send us a question. Just send us a DM at Floor is Rising.